Oh, thank you very much. It's a delight to be back. I am a huge fan of this church. I talk about you behind your back. And I tell people all over the country, I, I tell them that I know of this. There's two great churches in America. Valley Bible is one of them. And if you're wondering what the other one is, I don't know. There just has to be another one somewhere. I have loved this church. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm unable to come very often. I think 15 years between visits is too long. Of course, that's like some people who go to this church. Uh, same thing, I suppose. But it's, it's a pleasure to be here. I don't know when I've enjoyed worship more than I did today. Uh, it is extraordinary. Extraordinary. Uh, Deborah and the team took us before the Lord, and it was wonderful to be in His presence. And, uh, and I know your preaching week in, week out is superb, A+, plus, 11 on a scale of 1 to 10. And today, uh, good luck. Uh, the, uh, we, uh, we, love, we love churches who want to claim an area for Christ. We, want, we love churches who say that the ministry of this church is not confined within the acreage that the church sits. We love churches whose sign points out to the world rather than to an incestuous family who only want to service each other. We love a church that says, it may be dark out there, but this church is going to be light in that darkness, and that darkness will never be able to stand against this light. And that's what this church has done for 19 years, and we thank you for it, for the ministry. You can't know. We won't know until we get to heaven. All the people who say, that's what did it. In my Egypt, in the San Francisco Bay Area, I found someone who shared that message, and I responded to that message, and I never had a chance to say thank you then, but I say thank you now. And whether it's just your praying or your giving, your participation, your involvement in the ministry, whatever it was that has takes the message outside into a larger footprint in the Bay Area, I congratulate you wholeheartedly. You're an amazing church, and you need to know that. And Philip did not ask me to say that, okay? Uh, the most powerful forces in the world today, militarily, are the special forces for the United States. They're the most feared people on the planet, the special forces of our military. They go in where nobody else wants to go. And they go in at their own risk, and it is great. Today, the patron saint of our special forces is a man by the name of Jeb Stewart. Does that name ring a bell? from the Civil War, regardless of your position in the Civil War, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this one man, Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart was the most trusted soldier by General Robert E. Lee of the South. And Jeb Stewart was the, had that uncanny ability to infiltrate enemy ranks without being identified and getting back safely. And as a result, General Lee called him the eyes of the enemy because he knew everything they were doing. And one day, it was in June of 1852, that Robert E. Lee commissioned Jeb Stewart and said, I've got a job for you, and it could be that the war could ride upon this. I need you to go in. We're defending Richmond. I need you to go in, and McClellan of the Union Army is, is gathered all around us. 
It's the right flank I'm worried about the most. Would you tonight go and infiltrate and find out how large they are because we have to prepare for that right flank? And that night, with all the lights out, Jeb Stewart got on his horse and began doing what he did so well. He surveyed did, did, uh, the surveillance of that right flank. But then he said, well, now that I'm over here, why don't I survey the middle flank and the, the left flank as well? And so he did all three. And he came back that night to his tent, as he always did, turned on his lantern, and began writing out his report for General Robert E. Lee. And at the bottom, he signed it as he always did. Yours to count on, Jeb Stewart. The next assignment is that General Lee said uh, there's a huge cache of weaponry in the Union Army that's across the river. I need you to go over there, and Jeb Stewart, you may never come back, but I need you to do your best. See if you can blow up that cache of weaponry. And that night, he did what he did so well, and Jeb Stewart was able to explode and blow up the entire cache of weaponry. And he said to himself, you know, now that I'm here, and with all the confusion, I wonder if I could get into the general's tent of the Union and confiscate paperwork and, and secret documents to find out where the other ranks of the Union Army and the powerful forces, wonder where they're at. And he did exactly that. And he came back to his tent that night, safe and sound, turned on his little kerosene lantern, and began writing out his report to General Robert E. Lee with all the documents included. And at the bottom, he again signed, as he always did, Yours to count on, Jeb Stewart. I'm moved by that kind of passion and gallantry for a cause. And if I can use that as an illustration for us today, let me set it up by saying this. You and I are soldiers of the cross. We are positioned in enemy territory. It is exceedingly dark and very dangerous. Our rights and our credibility and our gospel is being threatened at every hand. And everything that the Word of God teaches is being poo-pooed left and right because of the darkness. And God, by His sovereign mind, has chosen to dispatch us, to deploy us into enemy territory. Our job is to represent Him, and when it's all said and done worth, to write to Him our words and say, Yours to count on, Ron Walters or whatever your name is. Now, that's the assignment. The question is, how does God measure our success? Have you ever thought of that? I mean, how does he determine whether I have done my job or not? And here it is in one word. He measures us by our faith. It's not how much we give to the church or how much we support even uh, truth for today. It is how much faith we have. Did you know that faith is, is it's an extraordinary word, an extraordinary study. Faith is it, it is what Hebrews eleven six 6 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. In fact, Hebrews 10.38 even goes back to say this. If anyone has tasted faith and then backs up from it, God is terribly displeased. 
So I want to know, what is faith after all? What is faith? What is it? If that's what God is measuring, I want to know, well, what is it so that I can know to do it? And the best definition I have always been taught of faith is found in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and I want to recite it to you. It is this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Can I tell you something? I don't get it. It doesn't help me. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I don't get it. I'm a visual person. There are no pictures in that, that sentence. So I don't understand what faith is. So I've had to write my own definition of faith. Can I, can I say that in church? It, it's not the Bible words. These are my defin, my def, I'm even going to stand over here a long ways from the Bible so you, you don't think there's a connection here. Here's what I believe faith is. Faith is loving a God whose wonderful face I've never seen. Faith is loving a Savior whose beautiful face I've never seen. Faith is believing in a book that is forever under attack. And faith is planning an eternity in a place I've never been. That's faith. That's faith. Faith is a, is a thick book item. It's not a thin book. It's a thick book item. Do you understand? You, you look like you don't understand what I'm saying. Let me explain. Let me help you. Here's a thin book. Things I Cannot Afford by Bill Gates. Thin book. Not thick, thin book. Uh, the Joys of Old Age by Dr. Kevorkian. Okay? Thin book. The Amish Telephone Directory. Thin book. Uh, Things I Love About the Democrats by Rush Limbaugh. Thin book. Faith is a thick book. It's a thick book. Now, let me show you this biblically because I want to show you what faith is like. In fact, did you know there are six different kinds of faith in Scripture? Six of them. And this is where you start writing down. By the way, can I just say this? Um, it's wonderful when you take notes in church. Uh, I'll say this for Pastor Philip. We're so encouraged when you start writing down when we're talking. You could be writing your grocery list. <laughs> and we're encouraged. But this is the time to start writing down. Six different kinds of faith in Scripture. The first one is what 1 Corinthians 15 called worthless faith. Worthless faith. It's a true, legitimate, honest-to-goodness faith in the wrong thing. A classic example would be found in over in 1 Kings chapter 18. That's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal having the most famous battle of their day, the battle of the gods, where the prophets of Baal and Elijah challenged each other to whoever God responded to a specific request, that would be the true God. And they all set up the terms of the engagement. We're going to build an altar. We're going to put a sacrifice on the, uh, on the top of the altar. And from 9 to noon, the prophets of Baal can call on their God 
to bring down fire from heaven to consume that, that, that sacrifice. And if he does, then he is true God. From noon on, Elijah was going to have the privilege of asking God Jehovah to respond and to consume it with fire from heaven, or he would be the true God. Those were the ground. By the way, Elijah had never seen this happen before in his life. It's not as though he pulled it out of the manual that God does this whenever we, you know, dial up his number. It was complete faith on his part, but on their part as well. That was their faith, and it was worthless because they, from nine to noon, went on just on tirades of calling for God of Baal to come down and consume, and nothing happened. Why? Because there was no God of Baal, but they had faith in him. It was true, honest, legitimate faith, but it was in the wrong thing. It was a worthless faith. And you remember at noon when Elijah clocked in, he began saying, Lord, I'm going to ask you to do this, and not for my sake, but for everybody, so they know that there is a God in heaven. I'm going to ask you to bring to And he didn't even finish the sentence before God fired down from heaven and consumed that sacrifice and the altar and everything else around it. They had worthless faith. Now, I might ask at this point, if you have faith in anything else other than the true God, that is a worthless faith. You will sink your life into that thing, and it will go nowhere. It's worthless. But that's one of the six faiths Scripture tells about. And by the way, it's the only one that's mentioned of non-believers, a worthless faith. The other five all speak to Christians. Now, I'm going to ask you to identify to yourself, not to anybody else, but identify which of these other five would be you. So we have number one, we have the worthless faith. The second one Scripture talks about is the weak faith. Weak faith. From Romans chapter 14, Paul is encouraging the Roman Christians who had turned into vegetarians because they, the meat that was sold down at the meat market had been offered to idols. And the Christians, the new Christians, the weak Christians thought, oh my goodness, if we eat of that, that meat that had been offered to idols, then, then we'll somehow bring a curse upon ourselves. And it was more superstition than it was anything else. And Paul said, encourage these people to grow up because that's not, that's not going to do that. It can't happen like that. But these were weak Christians because they believed that that might bring some sort of a, a weirdo thing to their superstitious life. So we have worthless faith and we have weak faith. The third faith that the Bible talks about is called dead faith from, Genesis, from James chapter 2 where James says those very classic and well-known words, faith without works is dead, meaning faith should do something. By the way, James is talking to Christians in his book. So he's talking to Christians who have a dead faith, meaning their faith is there, but it doesn't do anything. It just lays there flat. A classic example of dead faith is found in John chapter 6, where Jesus is at the feeding of the 5,000. There's 5,000 men plus women and kids, probably a conservative estimate of at least 20,000 people. And when Jesus had been teaching for a long time, he, he realized these folks have been with me all day long, and they haven't eaten a thing. So he, he was concerned. He had compassion on them, and he turned around to his disciples, and he said, uh, 
uh, and he was looking right at Philip, and he said, how are we going to feed this crowd? And Philip, to whom Jesus must have had eye contact with, here's what he said, and it's a classic example of dead faith. He said, Jesus, even if we had 200 denarii, which is about two-thirds of a skilled laborer, two-thirds of an annual salary of a skilled laborer, even if we had 200 denarii, wouldn't be enough to even feed a little bit to everybody. In other words, Philip was saying, Jesus, I know when it comes to religion, you're really good. You're really good. But in real life, you don't have a clue. I mean, do the math. Look at this. That's dead faith. It does nothing. It doesn't move. It has a faith of salvation, but nothing beyond there. I believe in you for salvation, but in terms of doing anything in my life, in this world, in my church, in my community, in my family, you can't do anything. It's a dead faith. The fourth one, besides worthless faith, weak faith, dead faith, the fourth faith is what Scripture calls little faith. Little faith. Notice how we're growing a little bit here. Little faith. And the, same, the best illustration is also right there in John chapter 6. As Jesus has turned to Philip and the disciples said, how are we going to feed this crowd? Andrew, hearing those words, Andrew began making his way. He was infiltrating the mob, and I think he was looking for food. I think he was really saying, well, let's see. we got to do something, and he found that kid, with, that little kid with a sack lunch. Remember that? That had five barley loaves and two small fishes. Remember the story? And he brought that kid and that sack lunch back to Jesus. Now, I want you to watch this little faith on a graph. Here's the conversation per scripture. Lord, I found a kid with a sack lunch with two barley loaves, uh, five, uh, five barley loaves, two small fish. But, is the next word. What is that among so many? You see how his faith peaked out at a certain point. He saw something, but, oh my goodness, the mob, it's him impossible to feed this crowd with this little kid's sack lunch. That is little faith. Now, let me show you, because this, this is going to stun you a little bit. Do you remember in Matthew 14, while Peter is walking on the water to walk to Jesus? Remember that? He got out of the boat and walked on the water to be with Jesus, who was walking towards him. Remember that story? And you remember all of a sudden... Peter began to say to himself, he looked around and he thought, what am I doing? I can't walk on water. And he began to sink and said, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out, which I think he was right next to Jesus when this happened. And he pulled Peter up and they both got into the boat. You know what Jesus said to him? Listen to this. He said, oh, Peter, you were going so great. Oh, ye of little faith. Walking on water is little faith? Yeah, according to Jesus. That ain't nothing. Do you realize that every time Jesus said the words, O ye of little faith, every time he was talking to a disciple, the very guys who had heard everything he said, saw all that he did, miracles, people raised from the dead, saw it all, 
And yet Jesus said, you have little faith. Is that true of us? There's worthless faith, weak faith, dead faith, little faith. The fifth kind is great faith. Great faith. It's mentioned only twice in the New Testament. It's both in the book of, of, uh, of Matthew, Matthew 15 and Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 15 is where the, the Canaanite woman, it, it was an extraordinary dialogue where she was really asking for Jesus for help. And, and, and Jesus said, I'm sorry, I've, I didn't come for you. I, I didn't come to cast my food to the dogs. And she said, but the dogs need to eat too. It's an unusual conversation. But from that, because I think he was just baiting her, how far are you willing to go in your faith? And he said to her, I have never seen such great faith in all of Israel. The other one was over in Matthew chapter 8. It was the Roman centurion. And the Roman centurion had been watching. He was kind of a street cop in those days. And he was watching everything, this big massive guy with regalia and everything. He'd been watching everything that Jesus had done and the people's reaction and how they had changed. And as he walked by, just after he healed that lady who had the issue of blood, remember that? He saw that, and the soldier, the Roman soldier, the centurion said, uh, Jesus, if I could have a moment. I have a servant at home. He's terribly faithful, a very good man, but he's been paralyzed, and he's in great pain today. Could you help? And Jesus said, yes. I'll be right with you. We'll go home, and we'll take care of it. And he said to Jesus, no, no, no. I do not deserve you in my home. I'm a man of authority. I know I can speak words, and people make action. They move because I say so. You are like that too. You could speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus, I, I can just see his, his Jewish eyes just opening wide, and he said, I have never seen such megas faith, great faith in all of Israel. The word megas there is a word that means great. It's, it's huge. It's gigantic. But it's measurable. It's like saying the sun or the solar system is huge. But we know how big it is. And that's what Jesus was saying to that Syrophoenician woman and to the, the uh, Roman centurion. Great faith. Now, there's one more kind of faith. You say, well, Ron, we already hit great faith. You can't go any higher than that, right? There's one more faith. Well, there's worthless faith, there's weak faith, there's dead faith, there's little faith, there's great faith. And in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul identifies another faith called enlarged faith. It's the word huperexano in the original, in the Greek. Huperexano means this. So massive, there is no measurements to it. If we talk about great as the sun or the solar system, Hooperxano is like the universe. There's no way to measure it. And that was this kind of faith. By the way, it's only given one time in all of Scripture, right there in 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, and it's spoken of a church. Not even an individual, a church. And here's why. He said, I, what you have done, and listen to this, because of the hostilities against them in Thessalonica, because of their poverty, and because of their physical afflictions, 
they had loved one another, Paul said, with an enlarged faith without limits. Enormous. Now I ask you, of those six, which one are you? Hmm. Do you need to move up a notch? Or two? Or three? You say, well, what is that what does that faith look like, that enlarged faith? What, if I were to have that most expressive, that, that, that enlarged, that Hooper-Exano faith, what does it look like? Well, I'll tell you this. It doesn't look like anything we can think about. It doesn't look like that at all. We can't imagine it. And here's why I say that. Do you remember the words over in, in, in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9? It is God talking when he says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. Let me say that line again. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now I want to ask you a Sunday school question. You give me a Sunday school answer. How much higher are the heavens than the earth? A lot? That's your answer? A lot? <laughs> They're immeasurably higher. They're infinitely higher, right? In other words, what God is saying, my ways are immeasurably higher than yours, and my thoughts are infinitely higher than yours. So, watch this. When God calls us to follow Him by faith, guess what? It ain't going to be in any box. I don't even think God knows about boxes. He's going to call us way out here to follow him because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. You say, Ron, this is getting scarier the further you go. You ain't heard nothing yet. Now watch this. Here's how this works. Let me show you how this faith works its way out. This kind of faith to follow a God who's outside of our boxes, who doesn't think like us, who has no ways like us, to follow him is a different kind of a faith than we have ever known, than any church has ever known, I believe. And I would challenge this church to be that church. Here's what that kind of faith looks like. That kind of faith believes in a God who defies human logic. That kind of faith believes in a God who defies human logic. For example, and, and I try to biblically example all of this so that you don't think I'm making this up or just giving you words, but I want you to see how it was done. Do you know that in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a kid and guess what? In Genesis 12, when God made that promise, Abraham was 75, and get this, Mama was 65. That's not an easy task to pull off. And did you know that was Genesis 12? In Genesis chapter 13, as, Adam, as, as Abraham and, and Sarah had aged, God promised again. He was a man. He's, oh, I'll do it. And in chapter 15, he tells him again, I'll do it. As the ages keep, and, and then chapter 17, oh, I'll do it. And 
25 years pass. Well, God is just saying, don't worry, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Now, the best commentary, I believe, in all of Scripture on this story is in Romans chapter 4, verse 19. Listen to what it says. Just listen to this. Without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also now dead because she was 90. Yet he did not waver through unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. NIV has that last verse, 21, and it says this. I love this. Abraham was fully persuaded that God had power to do what God had promised. Isn't that good? Which means, when in Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham, by the way, you're going to have a kid. He turned to Sarah and says, can you believe it? I'm in my 70s, you're mid-60s, we're going to have a kid? And the year later, oh my word, Sarah, it wasn't like, we're even older and we're going to have a kid. And when he didn't, the next year he was even more excited. And then when he turned 80, Sarah, I'm going to have a kid and I'm 80, you're 70. And when that didn't happen that decade, Sarah, you're, I'm 90. I'm going to have a kid, and you're 80. You're, oh, my God. And when that, the more it, time went by, the more excited his faith was. Because he had a faith that believed in a God who defied human logic. Our God is not bound by this stuff. He can do anything. Are you with me? Ten of you are. Okay, um, let's see. How do, I, how do I help you on this? How, all right, watch this. Watch this. Did you know that in this case, God bent his own creationary rules? For example, here's what I mean. God has created and made humanity through the source of you and me, birthed by the agency of a man and a woman, right? A mom and a dad, therefore we were born. Born by the agency of a man and a woman. Second way, God created Adam without the agency of a man and a woman, right? Third way, God created Eve with the agency of a man, but no woman. Jesus was born through the agency of a woman and no man. Okay, there, that's how it has to happen. And God says, oh yeah, I will bend my own rules, my creationary rules. I'm going to give birth to a man and woman who are woefully too old. He defies human logic. That's the God we have. And when we plug into the socket of the 220 power of God and believe that, then all of a sudden our faith takes another level. All right? Now, watch this thing. Not only does he defy faith in a God that defies human, uh, uh, human logic. Watch this one. This kind of faith is a God, is, has faith in a God who appears to be counterproductive. This kind of faith believes in a God who appears to be counterproductive. The classic example is found over in Exodus chapter 4 in the life of Moses. Do you remember the story of... Uh, 
the Exodus. Did you see the movie Ten Commandments? Did you see that? Yeah, me too, me too. Well, take a look at this in Exodus chapter 4. This is where it all came from. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, God has just told Moses, Moses, Charlton, I'm going to have you go back into Egypt, and I want you to stick your long, bony finger into Pharaoh's face and tell him, God has said, let my people go. Now, here's what you're going to, this is the arsenal. You're going to have all kind of wonders, all kind of amazing things that you will do to prove you're of me. And remember that? And he, he said, for example, see, what is, what's in your hand? He said, well, it's my staff, my stick, my staff. He said, throw it on the ground. And it became a what? You saw the movie, didn't you? It became a snake. And then he said, Moses, pick it up. So he picked it up and it became what? Staff again. That was Moses' staff. By the way, did you know that from that point on, never in Scripture is that referred to as Moses' staff. It's always referred to as the staff of God. Meaning this, even a stupid stick, when infused with the power of God, can become anything he wants it to be. Remember that? And then remember he said, now Moses, take your hand. What, what is it? Pretty good. Put it in here. All right, pull it out. What was it then? Leprosy. He said, all right, now, scary? Yeah, put it back in your pocket. Okay, pull it out. What's it? Oh, it's clean now. And I can hear God say, i got a million of those things. You know, I just... <laughs> now, watch this. Because if you were taught like I was in my home church growing up, I was taught that God was saying to Moses, uh, Moses, i got a million of these. Let's go back into Egypt, and you do those. We're going to really mess with Pharaoh's mind. We're going to play with his brain, with all these cool things. That is not what God had in mind. God had nothing in mind about Pharaoh. God had everything in mind for Moses. Moses, you recognize what I can do anytime I want to do, anytime. And then, but notice what it says in this passage in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, if I'm Moses, I say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold it, hold it. Let me see if I got this right. You want me to do all these wonderful powers and then tell Pharaoh, let my people go, but you're going to harden his heart so that he won't say yes? Did, 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 did I hear that right? God says, yeah, isn't that a great plan? <laughs> the amazing thing is, Moses did not say, I don't get it. I would have said, isn't that a bit counterproductive? Do you know that it was in Exodus chapter 10 when God said to Moses, Moses, would you like to know why I keep hardening Pharaoh's heart? <clears throat> and Moses said, yeah, I'd love to know. And God says there's three reasons. Number one, I want Pharaoh to know who he is messing with. Two, I want you to have some great stories to tell your kids and grandkids. It's right there in Exodus 10. Three, Moses, I want your faith to grow. 
want your faith to grow. By the way, Sunday school question again. How many plagues did Charlton throw at Egypt? How many? Remember? Ten. You're right, class. Good. Now, do you know how many times Scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Ten. When you think God is counterproductive. God, don't you understand what we're doing? Why are, why are you seemingly so against us? Just keep being faithful. You don't know the end of the story yet. And when you do, oh, the world's going to know who they're messing with. You're going to have some great stories to tell your kids and grandkids. And three, your faith is going to grow. Faith believes in a God who appears to be counterproductive. Uh, one more, because we got to get you out of here before the, get you to the restaurants before the Presbyterians get there. <laughs> um, third thing, here's what that faith looks like. Another one, that kind of faith believes in a, that, that kind of faith is never governed by sight. That kind of a faith is never governed by sight. Classic example, 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, probably the first story you ever remember from Sunday school. It is such a great story, I think we almost, almost pass it away as a children's story. It's one of the greatest stories in all of Scripture. Why? Because the nation of Israel, the armies of Israel on one side of the hill and the Philistines on the other hill across the valley, and every day Goliath would come down for a month every day, challenging the God of Israel, challenging the army, and the armies of Israel were totally paranoid, totally fearful, because their faith was governed by sight. And then David, who was just a skinny-armed little shepherd boy back home, and he's also an errand boy. He's kind of a food delivery guy. Jesse, his dad, said, would you take some home victuals up to your brothers who are on the battle line? And so David went up there and, and had some food for the guys, but when he got there, it was at the same time Goliath came out and challenged the God of Israel and all the Israelite army and caught blast him and swore at him and everything. And David looked around and said, you, you we can't let him get away with this. Who's going to stop him? And all of his brothers and all of his armies said, you, 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 don't you understand? That's a giant. You can't hit a giant. David said, you can't hit him. You couldn't miss him. <laughs> and you know the story, how it developed. And David went down into that valley up against Goliath. He with his little slingshot and five little rocks. Do you know the dialogue, because it's so important. <laughs> the dialogue that took place between David and Goliath. You've forgotten that, haven't you? Do, do you know who spoke first out there on the battleground? It was Goliath. And here's what he said as David, this little skinny-armed little shepherd boy, walked up with his little slingshot, and Goliath said this, What am I, a dog? that you come to me with a stick in your hand, I'm going to feed you to the birds. Then you know what David said? <laughs> David said, 
you come to me with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the God of Israel, whom you have defiled and whose armies you have defiled. And because of that, big boy, you are going down. <laughs> and the next two sounds on that battlefield were thud and thud. <laughs> as the stone that David shot from his sling penetrated the skull of Goliath in such a phenomenal way that his body literally went headfirst to the ground. And David walked over there and took Goliath's sword and cut off his head. And the whole nation, the armies of, 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 Phil, of Philistine were, were just destroyed. Because one guy, one, had faith that was not governed by sight. When everybody else in the army, their faith saw something bigger than their God. That's what this faith looks like. And when this faith erupts from one church, this enlarged faith, there's no limit to what God will do. There's none, because he has no limits. And it will produce the greatest words you will ever hear in your entire life. When he <laughs> says to you on the one day when you walk into his kingdom. You have been faithful over a few things. <laughs> Blessed are you. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. That's what we're gunning for. And the way to get there is through faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Philip, if you'll close us. Lord, we, uh, we stand here as imperfect people. There's none of us who have risen to the occasion of this kind of faith that you have called us to. You said your people honor you, love you, serve you, are identified because of their faith. May that be said of us. May we be those people that change not only our culture, but our world for Christ. As long as we're here, may we be people of faith so that we too can hear those magnificent words. Well done, my good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of the Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.